Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum. Today is Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. I'm your host, TPI President Scott Walston. I'm here with TPI Senior Fellow Sarah O. Oh, and today we're delighted to have as our guest, Dr. Mark Jamison. Mark is the Director and Gunter Professor of the Public Utility Research Center at the University of Florida's Warrington College of Business and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works on how technology affects the economy and on telecommunications and federal communications issues. He's written three books, contributed to several edited volumes, and published in academic and policy journals, as well as the popular press. And he has a PhD in economics. Mark, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Scott, and thank you for having me, and Sarah, thank you as well. So we have a lot to talk about these days, but I want to start with something that maybe isn't in the news so much, which is the Public Utility Research Center, PERC, which you've worked on, been part of for a long time. And it seems to me it's an incredibly important institution that not enough people in D.C. know about. So tell us a little bit about it, what its purpose is, what it does, why it's important. Yes, well, I'm told that we're one of the best kept secrets in the United States. We're known all over the world for our work in utility regulation, but uh, not so much in the U.S. And maybe that's just because it's where we put our energy. The purpose of PERC is to make sure that when we analyze utility regulatory issues, that we do the analysis well. The center was started back in the early 1970s for that specific purpose, and that's, that's what we've maintained as our bread and butter throughout. We, about a little over 20 years ago, when I came on board, I used to be a utility regulator in the U.S. I joined PERC in 1996, so about the time I came on board, with a small grant from the World Bank, we launched an international training program, which turned us from being a Florida-focused center to an internationally-focused center. And now, except during COVID, twice a year we put on a course that is about two weeks long. It'll be attended by 60, 70 people from all over the world. We've reached out now to 160 different countries, getting close to 4,000 people altogether. And the emphasis there, again, is how do we think well about utility regulation? Not trying to tell people what the answers are. As we're no wiser, our values are no better than anyone else's. And in fact, I, I know less about any particular person's situation than they do. Our goal is just to help them think well. I think by now you've had influence around the world. Regulators in almost every country, particularly developing countries, have been influenced one way or another by, by your work. Do you come across any regularities when you talk to regulators? Things that they, maybe misconceptions that they tend to come with that you maybe disabuse them of or the reverse? They come with ideas that, that you haven't thought of before or in their unique situations. Well, one of the things that always comes up is that the biggest challenge they face is politics. And it's, it's interesting when we compare regulation in the U.S. to regulation outside the U.S., how much more skill non-U.S. regulator has to be in dealing with political pressures than in the U.S. Because I've had some of my alumni that have uh, you know, faced an election in which if you raise trouble, you go to prison. And they're trying to increase energy prices because they have to, by law, in that environment. And my you know, former student succeeded through that. He be, actually became a permanent secretary. I won't name the country. But he, he did quite well. And those are the kinds of things that just make you so proud. Because these people are making significant impacts in their countries. I can take no credit for it, of course, because I didn't do the magic of, of what uh, this person or any of the others have accomplished. But um, certainly that is, is one of the things that really impresses me, 
is how they can think politically without being political themselves. And they, they have to be able to do that. I think the thing that almost all regulators around the world struggle with is that the challenge of being, being skeptical of your own opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we all tend to be pretty confident. Overconfidence is, is something we all have. And we, we think we know what the reality is. And we think we know what the answers are. And trying to help people be able to step back from that and say, okay, I, I think this is true, but what if I'm wrong? What are the consequences of being wrong? And can I take small steps so that I treat my opinion as a hypothesis rather than a conclusion that I learn from as I take steps into perhaps implementing it or is then stepping back from implementing it? It turns out that reality is just different than I thought it was. So I, I think of those two things, that dealing with the politics is something that um, they're really, really talented at because they have to be. And, and then also just dealing with that, that overconfidence issue that we all share. So that's interesting. I mean, in some ways, those are kind of opposing forces. To deal with politics, you have to figure out how to incorporate the, the, whoever's in charge, their preferences into what you're doing so that you can do your job without being fired or something worse. But then at the same time, knowing where you might be wrong, too. It's a balancing act. It also, it, it puts the question of regulatory independence in a different light. We talk about that here in the US and we talk about whether, you know, how independent the FCC is or the FTC. And whenever an administration, a president says something related to that agency, we we all sort of we get annoyed because the executive branch is not supposed to be part of those. But in these other countries, it's completely it's a completely different issue. And independence is much more important and much harder to maintain, it sounds like. I would agree that it is hard to maintain. One of the things that we discovered when we first started doing courses for people from developing countries primarily, that they could get all the economics right. They could figure that out and you know, we could help them with it. They largely came from engineering backgrounds, but mm-hmm. you know, they could eventually do the analytical models. They could write the laws correctly. They could do the financial analyses right. But still, their systems would fray and fall apart in many instances. And we wondered why that was true, because they got all the technical stuff correct. What we concluded was that they weren't making the progress with people's minds that they needed to make. That in many cases, we were asking countries at that particular point in time to do something that was against their nature. One was to see utility services as a business as opposed to a government service. That was really hard for them. And and getting the techniques of regulation right doesn't solve that problem. This is about convincing people to, to think differently. The other one was that you would be in a country where the prime minister or the president of the country could not dictate an outcome. Most of these countries have traditions where the big person in charge is a big person in charge. And now you have a government agency that can tell them no. Now, that's really hard to do. So I was dealing with those two what we call adaptive challenges, where we have to rethink our assumptions about the world. And say, well, our traditions, maybe they served us well in the past, or or maybe they didn't, but they certainly don't take us into the future. And being able to help a country let go of those things. And so we actually now have a a young woman, Araceli Castaneda, who's our director of leadership studies. And so it's an economic research center with somebody in charge of, of leadership studies. Because economics doesn't work if people's minds aren't in the places they need to be to let the economics work. 
So, I mean, talk a little bit more about convincing people to run a utility like a business, because I think some people would hear that and sort of get a different idea of what you, what I think you actually mean. I mean, it's not about trying to make a business, you know, come up with great advertising schemes and uh, and other things like that. It's it's more about trying to operate efficiently rather than, you know, for other, other, you know, rather than trying to maximize other policy goals. So explain a little bit more about what, what you mean there. Right. So, so it's all about the, the governance and how you separate the functions of government so that they can operate differently from each other. So you have the policy issues and the policy issues are about what kind of a people are we and what are the values we hold? What holds us together? What are we trying to accomplish as a country? That's the space of politics. Nothing else can do that but politics. And it's, it's got that wonderful role. Very messy, very hard to do, but it's, it's, it's critical. You have to do it. And then you have the, the regulatory role that says, given the politics and what we've said we're going to do, what we've then written down into laws, how do we technically get that done? And that, that puts constraints on how the utility then makes decisions about where will prices be, where will investments be made, you know, how would, what will the quality of the service be, how will we treat customers, how will we treat other stakeholders. And then there's also the financial side, which says, okay, given all the constraints that I have, this is where the utility has to make decisions, and this is what I mean by running like a business. Given the constraints, how do I do this as well as I can? Not just technically, but in terms of, of the finances of it, because I will try to get the technology just as ideal as I can, given my financial constraints. How much money can I actually bring in? And so that, that's what I mean by operate like a business, is you have someone who's focused on the finances. They're penalized, they're rewarded according to that financial performance, given the constraints of what the country says it's about and what the regulations are that are in place. Um, I guess one last question about park and developing countries before we before we move on. You said it was started in a partnership with the World Bank back in nineteen seven in the nineteen seventies. And speaking of independence, from what I've seen, you've sort of offered very you know very consistent advice and how to think about issues, how to think them through. Uh, the World Bank is not so consistent with their advice on um, regulation and so on. Have you managed to continue that relationship with them? Is there ever any tension? Because obviously, it could be overlapping in a from the bank's perspective in a positive way, or they might see you as competitors. How do you manage that? Well, let me, let me correct just a little bit of, of a misconception I probably uh, did, wasn't clean enough about. The, the Utility Research Center, PERC, started in the early 1970s, really, and started by the University of Florida with the utilities in the state of Florida. Ah, uh, right, right. Um, yeah, so the, it, it came about because this was when Richard Nixon was putting on wage and price controls. And the dean of the business school, Bob Lanzalotti, was on the committee, Nixon's committee, to implement that. And, and he was told, you know, do this for, the, for utility companies. And he said, they're already regulated. And so we talked with the utilities about it. And then they, they said, yeah, this is a mess. People don't understand our, our, what we do and how, how well to do it. So research center, just to try and address those kinds of issues. The World Bank became... Well, the World Bank's our relationship with the World Bank started in 1996, so yeah, but 20-some years later than that. And again, it was a small grant. There was a competitor, different universities competed for this grant to start international training. And the, the money was, was just simply seed money. The World Bank told us at the time, this is all you get. 
if you succeed, good for you. If you fail, well, life's tough. That's been the arrangement and the relationship. There have been times when the World Bank has felt us as, as maybe somewhat competitors, because they do have their own development institute that teaches mm-hmm. free courses. They do that a lot. In, in terms of we have a, a body of knowledge on infrastructure regulation that is a huge website with all kinds of resources and explanations. Um, the World Bank starts some of its own in that space as well. So uh, and maybe in some sense there's competition. But um, for the most part, you know, we, we operate on friendly terms. They're not deeply involved in our work. We do indeed have to succeed or fail on our own merits. Uh, the bank, as you know, is a complicated place. Um, a lot of really smart people, and and they pursue complicated ideas. Um, one of the, I think, the operational challenges of of the bank, and the people at the bank that I talk with uh, openly about this, they agree that it is project oriented, and so once a project is complete, people walk away from it, and no one else has responsibility for it anymore. And that was true with us getting started with their international training. They worked very closely with us for about three or four years. And then project was over. You know, the people moved on to other things. And there have been times when we've had to go and knock on their door and say, you know, we still exist. And we'd like to talk with you about things that are going on and how better to understand them and help people with them. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I've, I've spoken at some of your events, and it's always a lot of fun to talk to the regulators that you bring on. I always feel like I learned something new and hear some interesting new challenge that they're trying to deal with that we've never thought of. So it's obviously something, it's something really important and interesting. Um, so let's, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about um, something else you're working on, um, antitrust. Until recently, um, I guess antitrust was the focus of a small, smallish number of people, cared about it a lot, but it wasn't kind of in mainstream, in, in, the, in mainstream politics. And it seems to be now. What do you think of the current trends in antitrust policy? Well, I'm, I'm very troubled by the trends that, that I see anyway. I got interested in antitrust quite a few years ago, before I joined the university, as a matter of fact. Between my job as, as regulation, I worked in regulation for about nine years and started with the university in 96. I worked for about two years for Sprint, telecommunications company. And this was the early 1990s when the industry was getting ready to completely restructure itself. And I could, I could feel the tensions and see them happening. And that's what made me get really interested in antitrust because I, I could see how, what a difficult time the industry was going to have reorganizing itself and how the government was going to help that or, or hinder it. Because when you're in the government, and this is, takes us to today, again, you have that overconfidence issue. Um, Because I see a lot of people today that sincerely believe with all their heart that they know exactly how Apple's business model should work and how big Apple should be, how many customers it should have, what kind of uh, products it should provide. They believe that for Google as well. They believe that for Amazon. They believe that for Facebook. They, They sincerely think that they can ideally structure, then this industry will behave you know, according to what they think should happen. Two great big problems with that, of course. One is they actually don't know that. Nobody knows that. That's why competition works so well, because it's a competition of ideas as much as anything. But then also, you have the challenge, and I'm, I'm excuse me, I slipped my mind just a little bit what the second part of that was. So let me go back and, and try. But going, going to your first part, um, back to your first part yeah. with this overconfidence, you can see it 
in, for example, the House bills on antitrust, where they want to create a technical review committee inside the FTC. And any platform that wants to change its interface has to have that approved by the FTC, which is just unbelievable role for for a government agency. It's just, I mean, when I say unbelievable, I still have trouble wrapping my mind around this. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and, but we see that happen. Um, we, we saw it happen back when I was a regulator of telephone companies. You know, we actually tried to specify what the relationship would be with, with customers. Um, not anywhere near as severe as creating what the service platform would look like. But um, if we'd had that ability, we might have tried that. You just never know. You go back during the Obama administration. The FCC then tried to create, uh, require somebody to create an app that would run cable television to determine what packages were and what people could buy and things like that. And yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's an overconfidence that, that I understand it because I've experienced it myself. But when you step back from it, it kind of boggles the mind. The other thing I was trying to think of was the, when you, when you think in terms of, I will structure the industry, then it will perform accordingly. You have in your mind a paradigm developed a long time ago that's turned out to be wrong that you have a, you impose a structure or a structure is imposed, just falls from heaven, if you will. And then the, the, uh, the industry makes decisions because of the structure and then the performance falls out of those decisions. That's just wrong. And we know that that's wrong because we know that structure emerges from the decisions. It emerges from the conduct. It's all interdependent. It's all very dynamic. So that the basic theory that people are following is even wrong. I feel like, I mean, that's that's definitely true. And economics literature has shown that pretty convincingly over the past several past years. But I also feel like we're maybe a little bit at fault in perpetuating it too, because when we write papers, empirical papers, we still end up using measures of concentration as, you know, right-hand side variable as, you know, what we, even if we don't want to say it's causal or sort of using it as a causal variable. I mean, this is not a fair question, I guess, but how do we, how do we get around that? How can we do, you know, how can we focus on empirical research um, that takes into account this, um, the fact that the structure conduct performance paradigm really doesn't work? Have you seen things that you, that you think really, you know, you read it and you say, yeah, this is the way, this is the way we should be conducting these analyses? I have not seen anything that satisfies me yet. Mm-hmm. Because we do have some very prominent papers in high-level journals that take a structure as exogenous and then say, gee, what happens from it? But we do have some papers showing up every now and then that say, ask what causes structure. So, for example, there have been a few papers coming out of some work at, at George Mason that looks at regulatory structures and f- discovers that that results in a particular type of industry, how you regulate it. It does as well. I'm trying right now to get a few uh, postdocs together, and we want to try and take that on. We want to try and endogenize, as that's the economics jargon, the industry structure, what drives it. And instead of using structure to explain, let's find out what explains it, because then that's also going to tell us what's happening to the consumers at the end of the day. I always encourage people to understand. You go clear back to Adam Smith, 1776. He explained that the economy works to serve customers. There's no reason to have a business except to make customers better off. So that's what we want to focus on. If you were able to 
reform antitrust policy, what would you focus on? What would you want to do? Are there things that we should be working on? Well, my bias, of course, is in the technology area. Of course. So uh-huh. I, I think in terms of, of how things change. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I would, would definitely try to change is our basic assumptions where we, we have a static view of an industry. So we will look at what a company does today and we'll say that, oh, gee, you know, look, look what Amazon is doing. They're, they're requiring people to change prices this way or to compensate them, compensate Amazon based upon what a price discount might be someplace else. And you can run a, a nice mathematical model that will show that that harms consumers in the end. You, you can do that. But that assumes that Amazon is already in existence, that its business model is already in existence. And if you make changes to it, nothing else happens except for that change. In reality, in the tech industries, we're creating the rules that create the next generation of companies. And I want us to think in those terms. What is it that in in terms of rules for competition that we would want in place that allows really good competitors to emerge? We all know about uh, Metcalfe's law, about how uh, the, the cost of computing is declining. There's another law called Bell's Law, which says that we get a new generation of computers about every 10 years, and it changes everything. And that's what I think we ought to be watching for, is what's going to happen with the next generation of computing capacity, of what we can do with, with software and hardware, what kinds of companies will emerge, and what kinds of things, and how best will customers benefit from those? So as we think about antitrust changes in the U.S. today with new regulators and then tying it back to your experience with PERC and developing countries, regulators in other parts of the world, what would you say to these newly installed, newly elected commissioned regulators in the U.S.? How do you educate regulators to think better? Well, one of the things that I've encouraged, and I don't know very many of them personally. So I I can't address any particular person or even a very large group of people. But one of the things I would emphasize is this issue of regulatory humility. How are you going to make decisions that always have this kind of temporary nature to them so that things can can change? So for example, about a year ago, we had a series of articles come out I've forgotten the publication, so I won't, won't speculate what it was. There was about five articles on how the Federal Trade Commission had investigated Google. The nature of the articles was, gee, look how, what a horrible job the economists at the Federal Trade Commission did. They misforecast what Google was going to look like in the future, and therefore the commission made these really bad decisions. When I went back and looked at the decisions the regulators made, the commissioners made, I thought what they were doing, they were acting very wisely because they were in effect saying, We really don't know what Google will look like in the future. And so we're going to take this step that deals with an immediate problem without trying to hamstring the future. So I thought that was was really well done. So that's one thing I would consider is how do you maintain skepticism of your own opinions? I would also work really hard on the independence issue. It's tough in the U.S. to maintain regulatory independence. There, we gathered data several years ago, and I've forgotten what the exact numbers are. But if you look at almost all the regulators in the U.S., they come from some sort of a political background. And so even if 
you want to say, I am not going to be partisan in my job. I am not going to, to be captured by politics. Your whole history is, is steeped in politics. All of your friends are steeped in politics. So you won't even recognize the politics when it creeps in oftentimes. Now, when I talk with people, it's, they're sometimes shocked at the things that I will say, well, that, you know, here's where politics is, is crept in. And, and they, they don't think in those terms. So that's something else that I would do. And then I would also harken back to something that the FCC used to do, the Federal Communications Commission used to do. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to interview a lot of people who had worked at the FCC over the years. And I was basically doing research on two things. One, what did the chief economists do that were good? And then what did different chairpersons do that were good? And I learned that kind of number one of the, the relationship between a chairman and a, a chief economist was Reed Hunt and Michael Katz. And the reason that was res so respected, not only in that time, but even today by people, is that Reed Hunt said, he said, your job as staff is to do the analyses as best you can, regardless of what the answer is, do really good analyses. He said, my job then, and the other commissioner's job, is to deal with the political realities, but the politics doesn't come in to our center, to our, our agency. And he lived by that, and people really respected it. What he did then with Michael Katz, and Michael played this role very well, is every decision that had any economics to it at all had to be reviewed by Michael. And he had to say, the economics is good or it's not, and here's where it needs to be fixed if it's not. And that worked really well. And I would encourage anyone to try and pick up that model and say, one of your big jobs, if you're a commissioner, especially if you're chair, is to protect that organization, to make sure it can do its work well, to defend the quality and the rigor of analyses, and to make sure you have good minds and give those good minds opportunities to review your work and say, here's where you've gotten it wrong and here's where you've gotten it right. Maybe sometimes you have to make decisions that technically are wrong because political realities are what they are. Uh, but a lot of times I'd, I'd like for us to move closer to the direction where the analyses can stand strong. Let me give you one example. Another country. I once interviewed a commissioner from Thailand. He was with the, uh, the, the National Broadcasting Telecommunications Commission of Thailand. And at this time, and I think it's still true, Thailand was, was being ruled by a military coup. And I was talking with him about independence. I asked him, I said, how do you maintain independence? Uh, with with a, a military coup, because at any moment, they can just change everything that you do, and including you. And he said, well, what you have to do is you have to know that you have to know how far you can take a decision and still protect and maintain the integrity of the organization. And I thought that was, that was very wise. I think that's true for all of us to different degrees, but certainly in his situation, it uh, was a very harsh reality. How well do you think he managed to do it? I think he managed to do it really well. I haven't looked for two or three years, but last time I looked, he was, he was still there. And he was focusing on the broadcasting side, which is by far the most political side. Last time I spoke with him, it's been a few years, was when Thailand was having a lot of challenges with Facebook uh, because a Thai guy from Thailand had, had murdered his daughter and live streamed it. And uh, it took Facebook like 48 hours to take down the video, which if you know the Thai culture, that's decimating. They're very protective 
of how people, how they view themselves, how the other people view them as well. So this was really hard. So he had a lot of work to do, trying to get Facebook's attention, trying to deal with the, the politics in the country and the military as well on this event. He survived it. He thrived through it. His organization thrived through it. So I'm, yeah, I think he's done well. No reports of helicopters leaving the regulatory agency. No, no, (laughs) none whatsoever. Now, this question is obviously a setup. How do you think Chair Lena Khan has done in her time so far at the FTC, given uh, the advice you you generally would give? Yeah, and I don't know her personally, never met her. And I, I don't watch what she does very carefully. So I'm only picking up on a few things that I find in the media. That, that's my only source of information, which, you know, one thing I always caution people about with media is when, whenever you read something in the media or hear it or watch it, that you know nothing about, it sounds brilliant. But when you actually know the topic, know the situation, know the issue, you realize how wrong they can be. So there's probably a lot they've gotten wrong in things that they've said about uh, what she's doing. But let me just uh, address or respond to what I've heard or think I've heard anyway. I'm concerned about how quickly the new chairperson moved to implement ideas she had before she got there. She had become famous, part for uh, some writing she had done and her work in the uh, House Judiciary Committee staff. It seemed to me really imperfect information that those ideas move quite seamlessly into the FTC. That, that concerns me because I really want a regulatory agency to say, what's the law? What are the facts? Then here's my decision. And it's hard to do that if you've already viewed yourself as an expert on a topic. I'm also concerned about what I've heard of, of not being, not, information not being shared around the agency. Being a regulator is is a tough job. And I often tell people in my courses that one of the scariest things for a country is an ignorant regulator. Because a regulator will make a decision as if he or she knows everything. They they have no choice but to do that. And the more they're kept ignorant, the worse those decisions will be. Um, So I'm concerned about the lack of of information flowing. I hope that that gets remedied uh, because... Bad, nothing but bad decisions will come from it. And bad relationships. And we have seen that happen in other agencies. We've seen times at the federal level, also at the state level, where relationships have gotten so bad that uh, commissioners would disagree just on personal reasons and not because of the substantive issues. And I think that would be a really sad situation. We have a little bit of time left. So let's go to the, um, let's go to the FCC for a second. And, and before we talk about economics, which we know about, let's talk about something that really we don't know about, which, of course, is the palace intrigue. What's your favorite hypothesis as to why President Biden has not yet named a third Democrat or, and said who would be the permanent chair? I have given that no thought whatsoever. <laughs> as much as I study... Oh, it's, it's the most fun bar game. I, I, as much as I study the politics of regulation, I just don't get involved in it. So I, I, I actually don't have an opinion on, on that at all. Okay, so let's then, then talk about things we do know a little bit about, or at least we all have informed opinions about. So far, it looks like there will be about $65 billion for broadband, if all goes as people think it will. If it were up to you, it's two questions. How would you distribute that money? Let's make it three questions, and sort of this is a sort of kind of backwards order. How would you distribute that money? What sort of programs would you design if you had free reign? And do we even need any of them? 
So let me start with the last question. We don't know if we need any of them. We have, have not in this country ever asked ourselves the hard question as to what are these programs worth, which is really sad because as I try to explain to people, so you're going to have $65 billion, it'll be spent on something and it will have broadband in its name, but that means that $65 billion won't be spent on housing, education, food, other things as well. Was that a good idea? We, we don't tend to ask that question. Let me go back to your first question. I would distribute that money the same way I distribute my own money, which I don't distribute my own money. I buy things with my own money. And that's what I would do here as, as well. I would be willing to buy things from people. I would make people earn that money. We want to have, make sure we have broadband available and in the hands of people who need it. $65 billion worth in some sense. I would specify, here's exactly what I think the deficiency is. And I would make people compete for that money, just like they have to compete for my money. I don't just simply go to Walmart or Target or the grocery store and say, I have this much money. What will you give me for it? Yeah, I don't do those kinds of things. I would be just as careful with this money and say, all right, everybody's got to compete. Yeah, I'm going to compare prices. I'm going to compare reputations. I'm going to compare all these things. I want it to be, I like the reverse auction process that the FCC has uh, implemented. The idea came from Chile and Peru 25 years ago. That just took us a while to catch up with the rest of the world. I think that has been pretty effective for us. There are some things we need to improve. One is, how do we specify what we really want? And then I would hold people accountable, just like I hold them accountable for my own money. Um, Build a house, buy a car, buy whatever it is that I might buy. If you don't deliver, I don't pay. And that would be my situation here as well. This is one thing the World Bank, which we talked about earlier, actually got right quite a few years ago when they adopted what they called output-based aid. They discovered that if you give people money and then expect them to do something good, they will take the money and maybe something good will happen, but probably not. So they started up a plan where, okay, here's the aid that uh, we want to have. We want this to be developed. And when you get it developed, we'll pay you for it. And that made a huge difference for them. I think it would make a huge difference for us as well. Now, I like the way you describe the reverse auctions is basically that's the way we always spend our money, more or less, um, on everything. And people, you know, groups that don't like them because it threatens the subsidies that they've been getting forever, try to make it sound like something mysterious and complicated and yields bad outcomes when we know that that's just not true. The details of the auctions matter a whole lot, like you were, you were saying. But the criticisms that people have made of the one that just happened, Ardoff, have nothing to do with the auction process. It's about exactly. you know, who's eligible to receive money and how you define the areas that are eligible for subsidies. Sure. It's all about the, it's all about the, the pre-work, contract design, deciding upon the product, and we've not yet to the post-work. But uh, those are where the challenges are. And those are hard things. Yeah, writing absolutely. contracts is tough. That's why we have so many lawyers doing that, and we still go to court over it. Well, I think also one of the advantages of the auction is that it showed us the flaws in that process. And when you don't have a bidding, you know, competitive process like that, you still have those flaws, just nobody, nobody realizes it because mm-hmm. the money just goes out there and nobody ever follows up on it. Yes, exactly. Well, not that, I, not that I'm biased or have any opinion on that. <laughs> so I think we're, we're about out of time. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's always fun talking to you. 
Well, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sarah. I have great respect for both of your work. I've, I've, Scott, I've known you since you were a graduate student. You've accomplished a lot in this country, Sarah. I'm really impressed with the things that you do. And so it's, it's an honor to talk with both of you. Well, thanks so much. I hope we will have you back sometime soon. All right. Take care. You too.